Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55-yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network. Favorite players? Favorite players? Favorite athletes? I grew up in Baltimore, and you love the players that you grew up with. Mm -hmm. It's it's like your first kiss. It's like you love the music (laughs) when you were a kid. Johnny Unitas. Unitas. Brooks Robinson. And And that can never change. And, and then after 50 years, it hasn't. Nothing can, can change those, those first, first moments. Sports is for kids, isn't it? There's and, so much wrapped and up. And you're always writing And you're always, you're always a kid when you're a sports fan, no matter how old you are. Welcome back to Baltimore and the CFL Live Halftime Report. The Argos in Baltimore are the showcase for the first half, but now at halftime, a very special evening here in Baltimore. This stadium has been home to some great athletes over the years, of course, for the old NFL Colts and the Baltimore Orioles. And throughout this season, Baltimore will honor players from both clubs. And right now, they're honoring three of them right now. Art Donovan a moment ago. Now, Lenny Moore, the great running back for the Colts. On behalf of my family, to keep the tradition alive, my wife, my brothers and sisters, my friends, and all of you, thank you so very much. Lenny Moore, ladies and gentlemen. Our third inductee is simply the greatest quarterback of all time. In 17 season with the Colts, he established 22 team records and eight NFL records. He was the first quarterback to throw for over 40,000 yards. He led the league in TD passes four straight years. His 47-game stretch with at least one touchdown pass will last forever. The records keep coming, huh? He was the NFL most valuable player three times, all pro six times, and he played in 10 Pro Bowls, and he quarterbacked the Colts to three world championships, and on July 28, 1979, was inducted into the Hall of Fame. He is the golden arm, John Unitas. John, congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. It's a pleasure for me to be here. Uh, After a long absence, football is back in Baltimore. We thank Jim Sparrows for that. And we also thank you fans. You're the one who receives the credit for supporting the team and hopefully will be successful throughout the years. My congratulations to Jim and to all of you. Thanks for your support over the years. Appreciate it. John, thank you. 
Ladies and gentlemen, the first honorees for Baltimore's new Ring of Honor, John Unitas. There's still Moore more to come on the Art CFL Donovan. Live Halftime Report. We'll hear from Art Donovan and John Unitas. John and Leaf will have halftime highlights. It's all coming up from Baltimore. Welcome back to Baltimore, where a very special ceremony was held at halftime of this football game. And joining me now, I got to say, as a football fan, this is a big thrill. Johnny Unitas, who starred here for so many years, it's got to be great to see football fans back in this stadium. Well, it's great. I love to see it for the city and for the people. They've been starving for football for the past 10 years. And, and uh, Mr. Spiros was uh, strong enough to bring a football team in, a Canadian football team in here. And they're doing well, I think, at the gates, and they're playing well on the field. You threw for a lot of yards in the National Football League. You've had a chance to see the CFL now. How do you like the passing game here? Well, it's a lot easier. <laughs> so I think it's it's fine. The fields are wider. It, you know, it's more conducive to that type of football. Do you think as a quarterback it, it gives you more options than, than four down uh, on the narrow field would? Well, you have three downs here. Of course, you have to produce on the first two downs, but your passing game is a lot uh, a lot simpler because most of the time you're throwing against uh, single coverages. And you have more field width of the field to be able to run a lot different type of patterns that, than you would be with our operation. Johnny, thanks for talking to us. Welcome home. My pleasure. Thank you. You wonder what Johnny Unitas might have been uh, throwing footballs in the Canadian Football League on a field this big. He said it would be a little easier. Well, I think he's right. Uh, there's bigger lanes to throw in, obviously, but I think uh, a man of Johnny Unitas' stature would have had success anywhere, Absolutely. any league, at any time. This is a league of A's and B's. It's green and red and gold and black and blue. This is a league with two official languages and many unofficial languages. It's East versus West, wheat versus iron, love versus hate. This is a league where superstars are extraordinary and ordinary at the same time. It's a league of ice, of fog, of mud and wind. And for one Sunday in November, it's the nation's glue. This is a league as diverse as a country, a league of Jacksons and Kwongs, Johnsons, Moscas, O'Shea's, and Haji Razulis. This is his league, his league, her league, their league, and their league. It's my league, and it's your league. This is our league. It's a real pleasure for me to be here. The winningest coach in National Football League history, Don Shula, died on Monday. Shula's storied career spanned over three decades as a head coach for both the Baltimore Colts and the Miami Dolphins. Shula guided the Dolphins to two Super Bowl victories, which included the only 17-0 perfect season ever recorded by a team in 1972. He was enshrined in the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1997. Shula was such an enduring figure in professional football 
that one of his former players, fearsome defensive lineman Bubba Smith, once joked, quote, If a nuclear bomb dropped, the only thing I'm certain would survive are AstroTurf and Don Shula. Don Shula was 90 years old. United throws, competing the more. He's at the 40, the 35. More goes for a in 1956, Johnny Unitas joined the Baltimore Colts and spent the next 17 years wowing fans. Johnny, you let the go. He's got it! He was the centerpiece of the 1958 Colts-Giants championship that became known as the greatest game ever played. It was the first nationally televised NFL game and the first title game to go to sudden death overtime. United takes. He gives to Amici and the ball game is over. After leading Baltimore to their first title, Unitas became a household name and his legend only grew. As a Colt, he won three championships championships, Super Bowl V, and was a three-time NFL MVP. Johnny Yu's remarkable record of 47 straight games with a passing touchdown stood for over five decades until Drew Brees set the new mark in 2012 with 54. Baltimore's golden arm held every major quarterback record when he retired. He was inducted into the 1979 class of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. It is football Sunday morning here from the 55-yard line on what should have been the start of the CFL preseason for Scott and I. However, the pandemic, while taking away our three-down game this past year, has allowed us to catch up on our reading and rediscover the joy of just sitting back and losing ourselves in some great football books. Among the greatest of football books is Jack Gildon's Collision of Wills, about the relationship of John Unitas and Don Shula and the times they lived in. Jack, welcome to our podcast. And while I know that neither Shula nor Unitas ever played in the CFL, their legacy was kind of ever-present during the Stallion's brief time in Baltimore, which is a city with unbelievable rich football history. Thank you for coming on this morning and speaking with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, one thing, uh, yeah, just to echo everything that Greg said, uh, this is such a terrific book. And I think, uh, you know, a fan on the outside looking in, you're, you think of Johnny Unitas and Don Shula, and there's, there's a certain amount of hero worship. What possessed you to do something where you kind of pull back the curtain a bit and, and really show what kind of people they were, you know, just as individuals and, and how they came to clash? Well, I just thought that they were compelling people. And the thing that struck me that was so interesting about them was is that you could look at, at either one of them individually and say he was probably the greatest at his job in the history of that of that league. Uh, Unitas in particular, I think, <clears throat> you know, would be in that short list conversation of greatest quarterbacks. And, and because he came first, you know, he's kind of the Babe Ruth figure of that of that world. And then uh, Shula uh, had a great winning percentage. He had the he had the only undefeated season. He's got the most victories in the history of, of uh, NFL coaching and a super long career uh, with only two teams. And um, I, I thought it's very compelling that these two men who were so great never won a championship together. It's always, you know, we're always told that the formula is quarterback and coach, and we've seen it over and over again since uh, Hallis and Luckman, and that seems to be what wins in that league over any other factor. And uh, yet those two didn't win a single championship together in seven seasons, and I thought, well, that, you know, there's a story there. And when it came to the story itself, Baltimore is such a huge part of this. I mean, as you as I read the book, Baltimore is the the other character in this book and the history and the history that was going on at the time in Baltimore in the United States. To me, I thought that was such a great addition and made it really made your book more than just a football book. Can you tell me a little bit about the research process just 
with talking about the history of the town and how much the city of Baltimore changed during that era between when they first started together and by the time, you know, Shula left? Well, there were several factors that went into the decision to make Baltimore such a big character in the book. So uh, one of them was, it was just like, I'm a big fan of Arthur Conan Doyle and, uh, and Sherlock Holmes and always London is so interestingly described in those books. And it's always such a part of, of the action that happens between the two main characters and, and the, the situations they're in. And so I wanted to kind of, uh, recreate Baltimore in a way, not to put myself in his company, but, but, uh, you know, I, I thought that was a great literary device and, and, you know, it puts the reader right in the action, I thought. And then secondarily, I, I kind of saw the, you know, like if you think of the title Collision of Wills, I kind of saw the relationship between the two men, which behind the scenes was so ugly. And um, I kind of saw the relationship as a metaphor for the entire country at that time. And so Baltimore was is a great little, like, a, a, you know, miniature America. And in, in, uh, it has all the same kinds of things going on here that go on in the country at large, and uh, especially racially and social class and things like that. And, and uh, I just thought, well, you know, nobody really exists uh, independent of their times. We're all part of our times. And more than that, no matter how insignificant we think we are, we're all part of creating the times. You know, we create the times that we live in. You know, it's up to each of us individually to make them you know, make them what they are, good or bad. So what I wanted to kind of show was how, the, you know, these guys became so important by the end of the decade. They kind of came into the decade and you could see how they were like, like America. But by the time the decade ended, you could see how America was striving to be like them, you know, and that was very interesting to me. You know, in, in the beginning of the decade, the fans came, you know, wearing jackets and ties and fedoras to the to the stands they were primarily white they were primarily men and by the end of the decade you know it was very much an integrated crowd in the stands the people were wearing the colors of the football team and football football paraphernalia and things like that instead of suits and ties and and uh it was clear that the football players and especially those two men were setting the agenda for the for the country and for the culture as much as as they were being um as much as they were being influenced by it one thing that I really learned from your book is just, uh, you know, my knowledge of, of Uninus was sort of a guy who just clocked in, did his job, clocked out. And then reading you, your book, you find out, you know, what a fragile ego he had. And that uh, just what was your journey to learn so much about the character beyond what I guess sports fans knew about him? Well, uh, his daughter, uh, who is his oldest child, was a good friend of mine for many years before I wrote the book and uh and the book couldn't have been written without her her help and so she was the one who really gave me a window into a side of him that I really don't think any of his biographers ever really properly explored or described you know which was kind of his inner life a little bit you know the life uh uh the, you know kind of the secret life that we all have or the or the you know the the, the uh, private life that we all have and so she was able to describe for me, you know, much of his um, of his fragility that you're that you're referring to, and uh, also much of how he was in his private life, you know, and, and his family matters and things 
things like that. And he, he was a, you know, he was a fragile ego. I mean, she would say, uh, you know, uh, I would say, well, what's the problem? What was the problem between Johnny Unitas and Don Shul? And she'd say, he would, he would say to her, what is he going to teach me about playing quarterback? You know, I mean, he had a very good sense that he understood that position probably better than anybody else in the world. And he didn't think that anybody, you know, could really teach him anything about it, at least of all a guy who played defense and not very well. And when it came to their relationship, they I mean, they were, they were teammates for a while. Was their relationship a team as teammates? I know they played on opposite sides of the ball, but did that, uh, did that strain start when they were players or did that happen after they, after he became coach, after Shula became coach? I mean, I think it started as they, as they were players, but a lot of the people that I interviewed disagreed with me about that. And most pointedly, um, Raymond Barry and, uh, Charlie winner. Charlie was, you know, in his upper eighties when I met him and he was, he was the Colts defensive coordinator under both Eubank and Shula. And he was there the day Unitas walked through the door. He helped evaluate him. He helped teach him. And uh, they both said no, that, you know, that there would have been no hard feelings about the, um, about the uh, way things went down in practice. But, but uh, Unitas and Barry were lighting up Shula every single day. Shula was an established player. Barry was like a 20th round draft pick or something something like that. And Unitas was, had already been cut from a team, which in those days was a real, you know, really uh, a, a big insult. And yet in practice, they're starting to really, you know, really lay it on him. And, you know, as, Shula, as uh, Barry said, Shula did not really have the speed to compete in the more modern NFL. So he'd had, you know, high interception rates or, or you know, I shouldn't say high, but decent interception rates every year he was in the league as a cornerback. But he just did not have the the speed to continue competing against guys like Barry and especially guys like Lenny Moore and people like that. So they're lighting him up in practice. And, you know, Barry said, well, no, nobody would have held a grudge about something like that. But he also said that both Unitas and Shula were the two of the most competitive men he'd ever met in his life. He said, I was in the NFL as either a player or, or a coach for more than 50 years. And I never met one individual that was more competitive than uh, than either one of them. So, I mean, think about who some of the individuals he would have known as a coach at Dallas. He worked for Tom Landry. He uh, he coached. Uh, he probably coached Mike Ditka. You know, he knew some pretty competitive men in his days. But he he found that Unitas and uh, and uh, Shula were the two most competitive men that he'd ever met. So, in my opinion, I thought that there was definitely hard feelings. You know, they went into a game at Washington after Shula was cut from the Colts, and it was a big humiliation to him to be cut. And then he uh, went, and he, the Redskins picked him up in, in uh, 57, I think, and the Colts went down there, and they played him near the end of the year, and they torched him for uh, – Barry had 250 yards receiving in that era, 250 yards receiving lining up right across the ball from, from uh, Shula. So I asked Shula about it when I interviewed him, and I said, uh, "I said, well, what happened there?" He said, "Well, when I uh, came into that game, I knew how good they were." And he said, "I vowed to myself they weren't gonna they weren't gonna complete any long ones ever in my head." I said, "Oh, so then what what did happen?" He said, "Well, they completed quite a few right in front of me." He said, <laughs> "So you know, he he uh, he was put out of the league. He was run out of town, and then he was run out of the whole league by those two." So. 
I think there was, you know, that there was something to that. What are you just saying kind of reminds me, your, your book is so well-resourced. I think there's like 30 or so different people that you talk to. Are there some things that, that you learned that you really wanted to get in the book that, that you couldn't? I mean, because there had to be so much information that you just simply couldn't get in. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you hear certain negative things about this or that person. And uh, you may you may uh, want to publish it, but it's not necessarily substantiated, you know, things like that. Um, you know, so you don't really want to put that in your book if it's something that might hurt somebody's reputation and you can't really you can't really substantiate, you know, uh, what it is that, you know. So in other words, if it's something something bad enough, you'd want to hear it from two or three or four people you know, because you'd want to be, you'd want to be extra sure before you would print it. You know, there were one or two things like that. And you said he sat down with Shula. How was he? I know when you sat down with him, obviously he was retired and towards the end of his life. But when he, when you talk to him and his record, how was he? I mean, I just, I, I got the, I get the feeling that in the interviews that I've seen other people have with Shula towards the end of his life, he had seemed content, happy, and kind of at peace with a lot of things in his career. Is that how you found him when you sat down with him and talked about and all those memories way back when? Well, it was startling to see him because my view of him, of course, was shaped entirely as a coach. You know, when he was he was young and, and fit and, uh, you know, very vital. And then by the time that I met him, he was using a walker. Uh, I think he'd hurt his leg and he'd put on some weight because he wasn't probably getting much exercise and, and his memory wasn't wasn't entirely sharp it was you know it was good and you know you could talk to him about things from his cold stays and he and he could speak about them but then there were other points where you might ask him something and that you would think he would easily understand you know easily remember and, and it was not not easy for him to grasp it you know i, I uh, his son was briefly on the on the baltimore Colts uh long after sula left for miami his son was was uh, a receiver uh, with the Colts, um, you know, in one of the last iterations of the team. And he, I don't think he made it into the regular season, but he was pretty good. He had great moves. He was kind of like a Rain and Barry type, and he, he had great moves, and he, um, he didn't have great speed, but he, would, he had good, you know, really good hands and made this great play where he went diving, you know, high into the air to make this catch in the preseason. And I brought it up to show I remembered watching it myself. And I brought it up to Shula, and he had a great memory of that, you know. But he didn't—he uh, didn't have a great memory of Bubba Smith, for instance, you know. Like, uh, and at the time that they had—they had drafted him, and he was like, uh, "That didn't work out too well, did it?" You know, something like that, you know. So he could could be very lucid at, about certain things, you know. Like when I brought up his son playing for the Colts, he he mimicked the great catch that he had made, you know. He it, and it was exactly like it. But then, you know, he couldn't remember if Bubba Smith had worked out or not. You know, one thing, I'm a, a Jets fan, so obviously the <laughs> the story of Super Bowl three was quite interesting to me. But And I guess this is more of a compliment than a question. But just the way you frame that game around the way the country was at the time, I thought was, was so so really well done. And obviously, when that game was played, I was just a kid, so I didn't think of the political implications of it. But, you know, then you look back years later and see that you did have sort of the the younger upstarts that represent more of the quote unquote long haired type people in the country versus the really conservative cults. And I just really loved how you uh, 
how you frame that part of the book. Well, I mean, I think I even took it further than that because, look, <laughs> and you might not like this so much, but but I was almost comparing them to to the situation in Vietnam. You know, it was like the Colts were like the Americans. They were, uh, you know, a crusher. They were they were uh, all powerful, and uh, they were going in. You know, it was almost like they were going into the jungle to fight these uh, untrained gorillas, and 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 then and got their ass kicked. You know, so it was. Uh, it was, uh, you know, I almost saw saw the two events as metaphors for each other in a in a weird kind of a way, you know. And especially that year was was a turning point in that war. That, that 1968, I believe, was the year of the Tet Offensive, and and uh, you know, we were really struggling with that engagement there, struggling to understand it, struggling to find victory, or if, if there even was a such thing as a victory in a war like that. And then the Colts kind of. Uh, kind of went into that same type of a situation where they were you know big expected winners and and super powerful and and then they seem to be befuddled out there in that time you know that time period i mean we can actually really kind of compare it to the last year such a time of change there was so much that was happening and it seemed to me it was you know that 60 you know that super bowl three loss seemed to be kind of the changing of the guard in a way for the times where you know, the old, the old NFL, the old, you know, the United led NFL was kind of giving way to Joe Namath and kind of the, you know, the birth of modern uh, football, kind of as we know it today, where you've got a lot of media involvement, everybody's hanging on every word. I mean, God forbid you, you misspeak, misspoke, misspeak in the media nowadays. Uh, to me, it just seemed, yeah, it just, it, when I was reading it and of course with the pandemic going on, I'm like, man, there's a lot of parallels here to the times that we live in now. Oh, I, I think so too. And I thought so as I was writing the book, you know, I finished the book before, before president Trump was elected and, um, or right around that same time. So he wasn't as a factor, but you could see that the, that the country was headed in, into a lot of turmoil and, um, and a lot of the same issues, uh, that had really animated the sixties were coming to play here in the, you know, in the 2000s, it, it was a very, very similar in, in that respect. But Joe Namath, you know, you brought his name up and he was one of the people that I interviewed. And he he was such a pivotal figure and in, in not only in football, but in, in American life, I think. I mean, a really fascinating guy, very likable. He was as good an athlete as ever came into that league. I mean, he was just as, as great athletically as Dan Marino ever was or, or anybody else who ever played in that league. And, uh, you know, but he represented, he was kind of an anti-hero. You know, Unitas was like a World War II kind of guy with a crew cut and, and, uh, and uh, he represented work ethic and, you know, he was every American virtue wrapped up into, into one. And uh, Namath was kind of, you know, I, I interviewed Gay Talese for the book, who was a great sports journalist at the New York Times in the 60s and became one of the most important authors in the country, you know, later on. And he said, you know, Joe was a guy who kind of represented all the wrong things. He, you know, he screwed too much. He, he, uh, he drank too much. He, you know, he led that hedonistic lifestyle that everything, everything he did seemed antithetical to success in, in uh, athletics. Everything that we were taught was wrong. And yet there he was sit, sitting on top at the end. And, and uh, I think there was, you know, a lot to that. I mean, it kind of, you know, the whole country was kind of changing in that same that same exact way that 
that Namath seemed to embody. Yeah, I just remember I'm, I was seven years old the, the season of, of Super Bowl three, and, and I kind of grew up as far as my love for football. Obviously, I grew up in Alabama, so it's sort of a, you know, college, uh, you know, college football is all you had then. But I love the AFL, and that, you know, I actually like the AFL better than the NFL. So I kind of grew up, I guess, with a little bit different vantage point of it. But then, you know, reading your book, you can see, you know, how how so different they were and just the, you know, how people's perception of the leagues were. I mean, it's uh, I didn't realize it at the time, obviously, as I said earlier, but it's just it's really remarkable at, at the I guess the different ideas that not not just both those teams, but both leagues sort of represented at the time. Well, I, I think, too, you know, one of the things that I tried to show there, and especially in explaining how, how it was that the Colts lost, I think um, I think what I was trying to show there was, uh, was how ludicrous the idea that they were an inferior league was. And uh, it, it was just not true. I mean, maybe in like the first few years, but I don't even know if it was true then. I mean, you think about the Chargers winning the AFL championship, and I think it was 63 and uh or 62 or 63 very early on and that was as good a team as, as ever played football with as, as great a coach as ever as ever coached i mean i think that it was it was somewhat ludicrous that, that the one league was so far superior to the other i think that lombardi winning the first two games kind of kind of created that aura but you know he was really hard to unseat in the nfl and he was almost a red a red herring and it, was, it wasn't only because he was better, but he seemed to get all the breaks and, you know, everything everything went his way somehow. And he was a hard guy to beat. So when you took him out of the picture and it became other teams facing each other, I think it was a very level playing field. And, in fact, uh, the Jets coach, Weeb Eubank, you could make a very good case that he was the greatest coach in history. And Lombardi himself had a very hard time beating Eubank. He, when he was the offensive coordinator of the Giants, he lost to him in the 58 championship game. Um, when uh, he lost to him, I think the first four times he played him as Packers coach, I think, you know, or the first three times, something like that. You'll have to check it. But, he, you know, he had a hard time with Eubank. When he finally beat Eubank's team, he said uh, that it was his biggest his biggest day in, in, uh, in football was when, when uh, the Packers beat the Colts for the first time. So, you know, there was nothing inferior about the Jets to anybody. Eubank had methodically built them, and they were, they were uh, an extraordinarily uh, balanced team. They were a very, very good team. And talking, kind of talking about the Jets and, 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 and the Colts, there's another person that's really kind of factors into this whole story be- between the two, and that's Carol Rosenblum. What was, well, yeah. what was that relationship? How did Rosenblum affect that? Re- I mean, how did their, how did Rosenblum affect that relationship? Do you think between Shula and Unitas? Well, I think that Rosenblum made a key mistake in that whole thing, which was for whatever reason, Gino Marchetti was the real leader of the Colts, not Unitas. And he had the most sway with the owner. And he was also had a lot of, uh, if, if you would see him talk, he didn't seem very charismatic, but he had, he had a lot of charisma as a leader with the players. And he was kind of the one that, that uh, put the kibosh on Eubank and had, had uh, encouraged Rosenblum to hire Shula. And all of this in secret, secret meetings that, you know, obviously Eubank didn't know anything about. 
So when, you know, Rosenblum took his advice, uh, what they never really considered was the dynamics between the quarterback and the coach. I mean, to Unitas, Weed Eubank was his, uh, was his um, father figure. He'd lost his own father when he was like five years old. Uh, most coaches had rejected him. And uh, Eubank was like, you know, was like family to him. He, he not only accepted him, he tutored him, and he, and he, uh, he believed in him. And, uh, and he was a very avuncular sort of man. And, uh, and obviously, Shula and Unitas had the bad history, and they were almost identical in age. They were both, uh, you know, from the Rust Belt of America. They were both like first-generation Americans or second-generation Americans, something like that. They're, they were both their families were from Eastern Europe. I mean, they were they were tough, hard-ass kind of guys. And you know, nobody really stopped to think, well, what would the chemistry between those two be like? So I think that that was a a big mistake there. But you're you know, I just want to say you're really correct in putting the finger on Cal Rosenblum as an important figure. Not only in all of this, but in just the development of that whole league. His story is really um, is really buried because because of the negative qualities associated with him, particularly gambling. So <laughs> the league doesn't really like to talk about him, but he he was so important in uh, in making the league what it was. Uh, th- this is a bit off topic, but I, but I am curious as far as your journey as a fan. If, if you look at the city of Baltimore and then the trauma of losing the Colts, and then you have the CFL team come in for a couple of years, and then ultimately you have the Ravens, just from a fan standpoint, what what emotions do you go through trying to accept a new team that comes along, which is supplanting a team with so much history? I'm not sure I understand the question. Like, ask the question again. No, I'm sorry. I was just, you know, the, the Colts leave, and then before the Ravens came along, you had a CFL team come to town. So I was just kind of trying to figure out what the emotions of, I mean, you as a fan, of course, but like the people around you, the people in the city of Baltimore, how they, you know, how they tried to accept another team coming in and replacing a team that was so beloved and that, that was taken away so in such ridiculous fashion. Well, some of the fans embraced it and the media talked about it because it was all that we had. I, uh, but I don't think it, you know, it ever really caught on um, that much. It was, I, I had to happen to be standing next to the mayor when when they were discussing bringing the CFL in, and I went into just like, you know, I was in my twenties or whatever. I went in to get like a cereal for breakfast that morning. The grocery store was right next to my row house, and the mayor happened to be in there. It was like the grand opening, and I, I said to him, you know, I grabbed him. I said, "Don't let the CFL come here." He said, "Why? Why?" I said, "Because if you do, we're never going to get we're never going to get an NFL team again." I said, "You're going to tie up our only stadium with with the CFL team, you know." And to me, it was, and I think to a lot of Baltimoreans, it was somewhat insulting. I mean, we were the we were the kings of the NFL for so many years, and then to be a CFL city did not, you know, did not sit right with a lot of older football fans. And so, you know, they they did have a, you know a following here. But they weren't packing that stadium, you know, on a regular basis. And I think that Baltimore always saw itself as a big league city and that belonged in the NFL. And when uh, and when the so when the Ravens came back, then what was that feeling? I know I've read everything, you know, books about, you know, there was there was a feeling of like, oh, you know, we're stealing a team from another city was. I mean, Baltimore, they were obviously happy, but what were the general, I mean, even for you, what were the feelings of, of the Browns coming then? 
to well, replace I think you, Steve. You nailed it. You got it exactly right. I mean, I think there was that feeling because I didn't think that, you know, nobody would really wanted to cuckold another, another mid, mid-range city to get a team. I mean, we knew how bad it felt. And, uh, you know, but I guess it like the way I looked at it in the end was it was almost like a cosmic justice because we had lost one of the greatest, one of the most storied, one of the most, uh, you know, uh, glorious franchises in the history of any sport. And in the end, that's exactly what we got back. You know, I mean, the, the Browns, if there's any any team that was, you know, that equaled Baltimore's legacy in, in the league, it was the Browns, you know, or maybe maybe one or two other franchises could could uh could compare but not not too many and the browns certainly were almost identical to the colts in so many ways and the two cities were so identical you know so it almost had a feeling like we got back exactly what we had lost and then it was hard to feel too bad for cleveland because they immediately got a new stadium they immediately got a new team i mean we were out in the wilderness for 13 years and we were you know in baltimore we were lied to and you know they really really treated us uh in an insulting fashion, but Cleveland was not treated that way. They were, you know, they were immediately, uh, uh, you know, made whole and including they got to keep their, their whole, you know, their franchise records and their franchise name and things, things like that. I think we all would have liked to have been the Colts again at that time. I don't think the city, you know, the, the Ravens have already been here 25 years or so. So I don't think that the city feels that way anymore, but when they first got here, I think everybody would have loved it to have been the Colts. Yeah. And as time has moved on, obviously more and more people, you know, we're part of the, you know, all of us are part of that older generation who remember the Baltimore Colts. So when do the Baltimore Colts come up a lot, say in the media, local media, there, the history and everything that, you know, for here, just for example, here in Chicago, you know, the 85 bears are constantly mentioned always. I mean, that's just, that's eight, but it's ancient history. So are the, are the Colts way back when, are they talked about as much now as say they were right after they left or, or back in the eighties? Well, yeah, I, I think so. They're, they're talked about quite a bit and there's still a lot of people here who, who remember them and were alive then, but you know, people, let's say from, you know, Unitas's heyday from the late fifties on up until like around 1970, there are less of those. Um, but you know, they still talk about it. I, I don't think, you know, the Ravens tried hard right from the very beginning to, to kind of honor them and bring them into the fold. But, you know, like they have a ring of honor there and all the Ravens are, are mentioned, uh, um, individually and, and, uh, they have like one little placard for all of the, all of the uh, Colts in the hall of fame. And uh, you know, not, they don't have like, you know, like say the Raymond Berry's name isn't up there or Gino Marchetti's name isn't up there. It's just Johnny Unitas and the Colts. And then it has the numbers of the, of the Colts who are in the hall of fame under it. So, you know, they could have done a lot more, I think, to kind of, I mean, if you, between the two franchises, you, you really have a very, uh, you know, a top shelf football history, you know, that would really match or exceed any, anyone, you know, Pittsburgh or Green Bay or anybody, but they don't, you know, but for whatever reason, the Ravens don't really embrace that connection like they, like they probably could and should, I think it would be to their benefit. Yeah. And that surprises me just, be, you know, obviously I've never been to the stadium there in Baltimore, but I would, I would have thought that with all that rich history there, that the Colts, I always got the impression, because there's a statue of Johnny Unitas outside the stadium, 
that the entire that the entire Colts legacy was honored by the Ravens. So it's it's not. It's just Johnny Unitas and the rest of the team. And then yes, well, not only that, but you know, for years they don't do it anymore for whatever reason. But the Ravens marching band had the American flag, the Maryland flag, the Baltimore flag, and a blue and white number 19 flag as they marched onto the field. You know, so Unitas came to embody the entire the entire era of the Colts. But it just, you know, I mean, there were so many waves of great players that came through the Colts, much more so than the, the Hall of Famers. You know, I, I mean, you think about great players like Jimmy Orr, Mike Curtis, Bubba Smith, um, uh, Jim Munchler, Burt Jones. Right, Burt Jones was an awesome player. He really was. Uh, you know, and, and you think about, oh, how about Earl Morrill for that matter? Oh, yeah. I mean, so many, so, so many great players that had played uh, for the Colts that, but that are not Hall of Famers. I mean, you know, they should really honor the entire football tradition of right. Baltimore down there right. because it's, it's just unparalleled. Yeah. And, you know, he's talking about Earl Morrill. I, I use Earl Morrill almost as, um, I don't know how to the word, but I always use the term Earl Morrill to describe, to describe, Hey, I need an Earl Morrill. And it's funny now at my age, I get the looks like, what are you talking about? I go, I need a reliable guy, older guy backup that I can just say, and this happened a lot in the Navy. I go, I need that guy. I need that guy on my team. And they're like, what are you talking about? I need a guy that can come off the bench and literally take over from the get-go. And um, and so they got me thinking. It's you know the other part of the story. And I don't. And again, it's it's been about a year since I've read the book. But Earl Morrill, how did he factor into this relationship too? Because him coming in like he did, and I know, and from what I understand, Johnny and I had no problems with Earl Morrill coming in. They were good friends, but. How did him be, being part of that dynamic kind of affect every you know everything with him and Shula? What was it? What was their, their relationship like? If you if you can tell us. Well, I think I think at the beginning of the interview, you, you know, you talked a little bit about Unitas being more fragile psycho you know psychologically than what people would ever guess, you know, and and I think that Earl Morrill's presence had a lot to do with that. I mean, Earl Morrill was was a damn good player, and I think Johnny Unitas knew it. I, uh, you know, now Unitas was obviously a, a very, very secure in the sense that he had supreme belief in his in his own abilities. But, he, you know, he knew talent when he saw it. He knew Earl Morrill had a big booming arm and he was a big strapping guy and he was a veteran. Um, you know, I don't think that he necessarily brought the things to the table, the intangibles that Unitas did in terms of the knowledge of the playbook and the, and the knowledge of the of the. Uh, you know, the defenses and and things like that. And, and also, United seemed to just have a, a, a really a cuckoo desire to win and could really pull it out at the last second. But Morrill was a, was a really good player, really good. And I think that his presence, you know, I think that, that it was a little unnerving to Johnny U because Morrill came just as United got a terrible arm injury that might have ended his career. Morrill came there as United was aging and, you know, probably declining anyway, even if he didn't have the arm injury. And, uh, you know, so he, it, it kept him on edge in those last, in those last years of his career. It, it, he, he wasn't, he certainly wasn't the unquestioned starter. You know, when he came back in 69, he was never really the unquestioned starter again while, while Morrill was there. 
Yeah, Earl Morrill has always been just such an interesting uh, character to me for, you know, for the reasons you talked about, because this guy was a quality NFL quarterback. He wasn't just a quality backup quarterback who was thrown into service. I mean, this guy, you put him out there and he got the job done. Well, he had a lot of bad luck in his career. So, for instance, he was elected MVP of every single team that he ever played on, you know, in at least one season while he was there. And uh, but he always seemed to be in the same place as a Hall of Famer or following in the footsteps of a Hall of Famer. He was in San Francisco with Kittle. He was in Detroit. I think he he replaced Bobby Lane in Detroit. He uh, he uh, was replaced by Fran Tarkenton in, in New York. And he didn't get along that great with a lot of his coaches, which was surprising because he was such a, you know, he seemed to be such a non-controversial guy who who cleaved well to authority. And you could see, I mean, Shula was very fiery, very hard to get along with. But he, he and Shula were like uh, best friends. I mean, they, for the rest of their lives, they really got along great. You know, so he was a, a little bit of a tough nut to understand exactly. But, you know, I mean, to me, if, if Morrill had won Super Bowl three, but instead he laid an egg in Super Bowl three, that's unquestionably true. But if he had won it, he would be in the Hall of Fame today, I think. I mean, his the last half of his career was unbelievably good. And it, and in terms of just the quarterbacks of that era, talking about moral, and you mentioned Joe Namath earlier, when you talked to Joe Namath, and this is the, the one question I've always had in watching old NFL films clips when Namath talks about Unitas and that. What, did Unitas and Namath have a, a, a relationship, um, a mentor? I mean, what no. was their relationship no, like? I mean, I think that... Uh... I think that Joe Hero worshipped Unitas, you know, and they were both from Western Pennsylvania. And and, uh, Joe, growing up, I'm sure you've seen the NFL films and things like that. He he wanted to be Unitas. He wore his number in high school. But Unitas didn't feel any affinity for for Namath at all. I mean, he, you know, he was just another guy. I think in in some senses he didn't like him because he got paid a lot more than than uh than United did and right off the right off the bat he came into to professional football with a huge contract and I think that United felt that uh he was more you know hyped up more than than great but you know but everybody respected Joe Namath he had a great arm and he was a great you know a great passer he was a really good play caller. They were both tutored by Weed Eubank and taught the game by Weed Eubank. So I, I don't mean to suggest in any way that United didn't respect them. I think United respected everybody who could make it pro football. But but uh, I don't think that he had any special connection to Joe Namath in, in any way whatsoever, but I think that Joe felt one for him. And um, in talking with, you know, not only Joe, but other people, I mean, was United, United, in my readings, not only of your book, but other books, it seemed to me he, he was kind of very distant at times. I know even with, I think, with his children, too, he was very distant at times. Is that is that what, what yeah, you I mean, came I walking that's, away that's with? totally accurate. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the way his, his teammates felt about him. That's the way his family members felt about him. He was uh, seemed to have an interior life, you know, that and that nobody really felt like they, that they, uh, that they knew him that well. The one exception to that rule, I think was his daughter, Jan, who, who I think she felt like she did know him pretty well. And, you know, and I, she was a lot like him in personality in the sense that she, uh, she saw things, she tended to see things in an unvarnished way, 
You know, she didn't she didn't sugarcoat it because it was her father. Uh, she didn't sugarcoat it because he was a great man. She tended to see things in the way that she found them, and she, you know, she's not shy about about saying it. So, outside of her, and I'm sure she would say her mother. Uh, I don't know that you know that I met anybody that really felt like they knew him exceptionally well. Uh, segueing into, I think we talked earlier. You mentioned that you had had just completed another book or were working on another book. I was wondering if you could talk about that for for a couple of minutes. Sure. I just uh, wrote a book about the great racehorse, Spectacular Bid. And uh, I don't know if you guys remember him or not, but he ran for the Triple Crown in 1979. And he won the Kentucky Derby, won the Preakness. Um, and then in a gigantic upset, he lost at the Belmont Stakes. It turned out like a day or two later, the trainer disclosed that he had stepped on a pin, you know, the morning of the race or, in, you know, in the late hours of the night before the race. And... Uh, and then about a week after that, the jockey, who was a great story in his own right, a, a teenager from Baltimore, from a very blue-collar neighborhood of Baltimore called Dundalk, that he got caught with uh, with cocaine in, in the parking lot of, of uh, Disney in, in Los Angeles, and and then uh, and then you know he kind of fell out of the public eye. He he was a cocaine addict for 40 years, and uh, and then died, you know, while he was still in his 50s. So it. It's a very interesting story that had never ever been reported properly, with a lot of a lot of twists and turns under the surface to kind of show, like uh, you know, the forces in racing and and uh, and how it was able to bring down somebody with a lot of talent. And uh, kind of coupling on that, and in, in writing, what do you find? I mean, part of the fun part about writing is the research. And, and I know, and I know Scott, Scott and I have had this conversation. When you, what is kind of your, your process when you start a project like that? Where is kind of your starting point in terms of like, you know, I know with football, it's easy to go back to the NFL films and the documentaries, but for you personally as a writer, where, when you say, hey, I'm going to write this book, where do you start at? And I've always been curious with authors, kind of their starting point and their methodology going forward. Well, I'm probably less organized than than most, and and uh, my method is probably more haphazard. But I just start off by talking to one or two people who, whoever they are, that I can get a hold of. I start uh, going through newspaper archives, and you know, one of the benefits of writing about sports is that so much is documented in the daily newspapers, and. Uh, you know, so I start I start going through those things or any magazines or, or uh, you know, anything else that I can find that's written down. And then as I talk to my first people, I start asking them for more names. I try to publicize myself as I go. And then that way other people reach out to me. I mean, the thing in, in, in writing nonfiction like this is I think it's very important to have two kinds of sources, um, primary sources. One are these stars. It's like, it's great to talk to Don Shula and it's great to talk to, uh, you know, Raymond Barry, but they're not necessarily going to tell you, you know, the, the deepest, darkest secrets. Right. But when you start to find like, hey, I was an equipment guy there for 20 years and I, you know, I saw those guys screaming at each other. And, you know, you, you talk to family members, you talk to little known players, you know, whatever. I mean, they're they are not only just as important, but they're. They're more important. I think the public likes to see that you talk to the big names, 
but but uh, in reality, the book emerges from 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 unknown names, from yeah. people that nobody's ever heard of, but were there, saw everything, knew everything. They could have grudges, you know. They could have reasons to want to talk that more established people don't. And I, and I know, you know, as time has moved on, when you did this book, I mean, a lot of people, you know, affiliated with the cults had passed on. And, and getting those interviews, how hard was it to say to get the Don Shula interviews to Joe Namath? How many, did you have to go through people on those? Or, or could you just, you know, like, we reached out to you on Twitter and saying, hey, we'd like to talk to you. Is it, is it kind of a little bit of both? It's a little bit of both, but it's, it was usually easy, but not always. So the first important interview I had for the Colts book was Raymond Barry. And that came because Jan Unitas helped me and she, she got in touch with him. She recommended me to him and she, you know, she made it possible. And, and, you know, so I, I was able to speak to him when I got to Shula. Um, I did that by, uh, by puttering around and finding kind of a back door to, uh, to Earl Morrill. And then uh, knew that Morrill was close to Shula because he played for him in both places and had a lot of success for him in both places. And uh, so I called Morrill and, and uh, his wife was immediately very nice to me. And she got in touch with the Shulas because they were still very close friends that got together regularly and, uh, and talked on the phone all the time to boot. She called Shula's wife for me immediately. And then, uh, and then uh, when I got in touch with, uh, Shula, you know, they, I think I went from my first contact on the phone with him to sitting in his living room in about one week. So, you know, that's, you, you've got to find them and you've got to reach out to them. And, and, uh, you know, uh, your credibility is very key, you know, things like that. As far as that book from, from cradle to grave, from when you first got the idea to when, when you finished about how long did it uh, take for you to, to get it written? Like maybe 40 years. <laughs> I think I, I initially had the idea when I was 15 years old. And so, and then I finished it when I was in my, you know, I guess I was like probably close to close to 50 years old. So, you know, whatever, however many years that is, I, I obviously wasn't uh, too adept at math, but somewhere in there, 35, 45 years, I don't know, whatever it was. Yeah. So this was a little more than just writing a thousand words a day. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I really didn't know what I was doing as I began. You know, I'd never written a book before. I was an everyday writer since I was a teenager. I mean, I, I would wake up every single day and write. I did it, you know, I was a, uh, the editor of my high school newspaper. I was uh, one of the editors of my college newspaper. I uh, worked in uh, marketing and advertising for many years as a writer. And uh, I, uh, parallel to that, I had a kind of a freelance journalism career and uh, wrote, wrote videos and things like that, sports videos, TV commercials, all kinds of things. But, but uh, I had never written a book before. And so when I, you know, it took me a lot longer to do it than it should have just because I was teaching myself how to do it as I went. I think it's a lot more complex than what people, people understand. It's like you go on Amazon and people will kick you to, you know, kick in your teeth and tell you how horrible you are and things like that but they don't have any idea how how hard the work is how intricate it is how complex it is and how low paying it, it all is you know they might have a little mercy on your soul if they understood yeah it's uh you know just talking about that scott and i had this conversation just about you know the financial aspect of writing books you know it is a truly a labor of love and i've got friends of mine on the on the military side that have written some 
great books and they're like this is definitely a labor of love and i know like your book comes i mean it's a labor of love but you know the one thing i like about your book is it brings kind of the romance for lack of a better term of that era back there's just something about those baltimore i tell people in my football collection i have a lot of books of those books I want to say the vast majority are about the Baltimore Colts, whether it be about Unitas, whether it be about that era. What is it about the Baltimore Colts that to this day, for a lot of us, when when we hear that march, when we hear the the marching band, the 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 Colts march, and when we see those old clips, what is it about it about Baltimore specifically that you know brings you know just brings back that nostalgia? Well, I think a big part of it is is the authenticity of that era. So. You know, you could say that football today is almost like a like a shadow of of football of that era. It's it's it is it resembles it, but it's not exactly the same game. And I think in that era, you know, people look at it, and the, even the uniforms they wore were made of real fibers. The 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 grass was real. The you know, it it was just it was all very authentic. You know, and what I wanted to do was kind of recreate that authenticity and, and kind of show what made that game so great, but also kind of explain where it went and why, you know, why we lost it that way. And, you know, part of it is, is it's, you know, there are levels in which it's a reprehensible game. I mean, those guys were bashing their brains out, out, out there, you know, and, and in horrible equipment to boot. I don't even know if the equipment really makes any difference at all or not, but but, uh, you know, it, it was, a you know, the authentic game was great because it was dangerous, but it was it was all also awful because it was dangerous in much the same way, you know, like, say, boxing is. It's, it, it, it reveals, you know, so many virtues about a person, you know, about someone who really can overcome and, and deal with the, the adversity and deal with the danger and the fear, you know, that comes along with playing that game. And, uh, but at the same time, you know, when you really think about it, rich guys get very, very rich, you know, owning that sport and the, and the laborers, you know, they lose their brains. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a very, it's, you know, it's a very compelling sport, but, you know, you have to come to grips with that aspect of it. Yeah. And so when you, you know, talking about just the physical toll the game takes on people, with Shula, obviously old age. I mean, he 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 played the old old. He was you know he played back in that those days. And Earl Morrill. I mean, I know Earl Morrill died. I think he died of dementia. Am I correct? Well, I don't know if he died quote unquote of dementia, but he had terrible dementia at the time yeah. he died. But you know, I don't know what killed him. But yeah, I mean, he was declining physically, you know, dramatically. When I saw him, he was using a walker, and uh, he had some memory, but. But he, he was almost kind of like, you know, in, in his behavior. And he would, you know, if I would ask him a question, he would point to his head and say, uh, my recall button don't work too well. You know, he would say that over and over. And uh, so his wife assisted him in that interview. And, uh, you know, and, and so many of those players uh, of that, you know, that I spoke to or of that era were, you know, all suffering through dementia issues. Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, you know, and just talking about that era too, uh, Memorial Stadium. Tell me about Memorial Stadium. I mean, Scott and I, I mean, that's that, that's another character in every Colts book I, I read about that is always talked about. But what was Memorial Stadium like in terms of just the atmosphere? And, and kind of compare it to today. I mean, I have sat both in modern day Soldier Field 
and Wrigley Field in the same year. And there's such a a feel a difference in the feel of 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 the modern versus the old ballparks. What was Memorial What was Memorial Stadium like on game day? Well, Memorial Stadium was interestingly it was two things. It was it was uh, an old stadium from the day it was built, and it was never really an old stadium. It it never it, it wasn't even there that long, but it had the feel of a very of a very old stadium because it was kind of dumpy and it was kind of uh, you know it was always looked upon even in the '60s as a third class facility and you know, and things like that, but it was, uh, but it was fun. And, you know, going back to the idea of authentic, I mean, the, the tickets were low cost, even by the standards of the era, you know, so it was like, uh, you know, a plebeian theater. I mean, it was, it was great fun for the working classes and, uh, you know, and they loved it. You, you know, that, that stadium was packed. It was sold out every single game for the entire decade of the sixties which probably doesn't seem like a big deal now in this era of uh, personal seat licenses and things like that, but it was unusual back then. And, uh, you know, they were always sold out. It was always, you know, a uh, uh, crazy, you know, environment in there. I think I have one story in the book where the Colts uh, beat the Packers at Memorial Stadium and Lombardi is furious at the end of the game, but he was less furious at losing than he was about a fan who, came off the field it came from the stands onto the field walked right up to Lombardi and tapped him on the shoulder mid-game and, and, said, and the guy was you know skunky drunk said had said to him uh you know asked him to please sit down and tell his assistant coaches to sit down because he and his buddies couldn't see the game from their seats you know so he uh he was just beside himself talking to the press after the game about how horrible they are in Baltimore he hated it you know that they were drunks and that they uh that the police didn't, didn't not only didn't do anything about it, but they seemed to encourage it. I think I read it. I don't know if you guys ever read Alex Karras's book, but I think he described being chased around the, the, the bench by a, a, a drunken Colts fan with a, uh, with a knife in his hand. <laughs> he was circling him around the bench, running after him, you know, things like that. That's kind of, that's it, kind it, of like what Memorial Stadium was like. Yeah. And if my memory serves me correct too, didn't Mike Curtis deck somebody that ran out in the field? Yeah, yeah, like Curtis Jack somebody. <laughs> I think he called him when he described him as a hubcap popper. Yeah, so I think and it was it... a hubcap popper. <laughs> that was well, his career. Like he worked at General Motors or something. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing too, you know, about the modern game, the game we have nowadays. You don't even see when somebody runs out in the field, they don't show him out in the field. But back, you know, back in those days. I remember watching when somebody ran on the field, you saw the guy running out in the field and yeah, the game is just, too. yeah, just the game has changed so much. Now, again, we are getting, we are all of us, we're in the same age group. So we, we grew up in a different era and just looking at the game now compared to then, do you think, well, it's hard to compare eras just to begin with, but do, as we've moved on, do you see the game having the same romance as it did back then. I honestly don't, but I, I try to, there are other leagues such as the CFL that to me are very old school where you've got guys at work who play and then also work in the off season. Um, same way with some, all the other minor leagues. Um, and I know back in Baltimore back during the day, you know, Johnny United's had, had, had a real job on the, in the off season. So what just kind of, in terms of just kind of looking forward with the NFL, 
do you see the romance of that ever coming back? No, I don't. I mean, I just think it's going through a life cycle, you know, and I think that for me personally, you know, and I've been watching football for a very long time. I, I think that, uh, that the heyday really was the sixties. It was, it was invented by Unitas and Barry and Eubank in the 58 championship game. And then I think it hit its apex in the 65 game uh, when the Colts played uh, Green Bay in that special playoff game when they were tied at the end of the season. And it was just, that's what created modern football. It was from 58 to 65. And, and then, you know, after that, it became a game that was more, you know, it was, it became oriented around different things than it was was before that it became very uh you know money oriented as you're alluding to I don't, I don't think there was that same hunger i mean what i found in that previous game you know a the danger was a big part of it and b the, the hunger of these guys i mean you know almost everybody i talked to uh came from these coal towns steel mill towns i mean their fathers were the toughest men they knew they, they equally loved and feared their fathers they, uh, they did, they, you know, they were determined never to go into their father's work. You know, they didn't want to go down into a coal mine all day. They didn't want to be near a blast furnace. They were, they were terrified of their father's lives. This is almost every single guy that I talked to, and their motivation came from, from wanting to have a different life. They weren't necessarily intellectually gifted people, and I'm not implying by any means that they were dumb. But if they weren't playing football, and in some cases, uh, many of them would have been you know, uh, laborers and, and people like that. And they didn't, you know, and this gave them a way of, uh, of making, a, a, a salary that was far beyond what they could have earned, you know, w- without it. But, you know, they were good guys. They went to college. They weren't by any means dumb people. I'm, I'm not at all implying that. Uh, and I'm not implying that about laborers in general, but, but what they could have done with their, um, with their, uh, careers, you know, it would have been nothing compared to what, you know, the opportunities that football offered them. And that's what made the level of competition so flaming hot. And today, I don't, you know, in many cases, I don't know that the people are coming from the same poverty. And I don't know that, uh, you know, once they sign that first contract, you know, I think a lot of them won't have too many worries for the rest of their lives. Yeah, that's one thing that I think, especially a, maybe a younger fan now, they don't really realize that the NFL was not necessarily a big money league until relatively recent history. You know, the WFL to a degree helped increase salaries. And I think the USFL really, you know, really started the change where NFL players were making a lot more money. But yeah, like, you know, in the era that you wrote about, I mean, certainly these guys did make uh, more money than working in a factory, but a lot of them weren't necessarily getting rich. No, but they weren't getting poor either. You know, I think it was, it's, it's also a little overstated. You know, I, I mean, like I live about 10 minutes from Weeb Eubanks' old house here in Baltimore, and he didn't, you know, he didn't live in a McMansion like Ray Lewis did. But he lived in a house that was like uh, that you would expect like a, a, a bank president or a CEO or or a surgeon would live in. He, he had a very nice lifestyle. And I think that many of the players, you know, in, in that era, you think about people aspired to live in the suburbs and drive a nice car and things like that. I mean, they made a very nice living. They just weren't super rich people like they are today. But they made a very comfortable living and out of football. Now, in terms of the, the, the money and, and, and playing football. Carol Rosenblum obviously took care of his players. I mean, that was the one thing 
that in all my readings and even in reading your book, Carol Rosenblum, he he helped people out. I mean, he got people started in business. And even with you not, I mean, did and I don't recall, did you not did Rosenblum help Unitas out much in terms of after his career getting him started? I mean, I know they had an agreement for him to work for the team, but after Ursay bought the team, that agreement was off. Right. Well, he reneged on that agreement. And then uh I don't, it doesn't seem like Rosenblum helped Johnny U very much after football was over, but during his career, Unitas had a lot of business businesses that he might have he might have played a role in helping him start. It, it, I'd be surprised if he didn't, but I don't really have any specific knowledge of what he did to help him. But uh, he had a bunch of businesses while he was still mid-career, you know, restaurants and bowling alleys and all kinds of things. Later on, he got involved in electronics. Um, but those businesses generally didn't end well for him. And he lost a lot of his money through those, through all of those businesses. And he generally had partners that took advantage of them in a, in a lot of them, but Rosenblum, you know, he was very helpful to them. I mean, Marchetti and Amici became millionaires, you know, because Rosenblum had the idea that they start a fast food restaurant, you know, modeled on McDonald's and, but the difference being that they used their names as uh, as the bait, you know, because they were big celebrities. He understood the power of their celebrity at a time when very few other people did. And, and uh, they started a fast food restaurant called Gino's and they sold it for millions of dollars when, you know, about 20 years later. Yeah. And yeah, I know the, the one, the one memory I have, you know, I, I didn't watch Johnny Unitas play cause I was too young, but the first memory I have of Unitas just talking about after his career was in the um, some some time forgettable movie uh, Gus when he uh, played yeah. opposite Bob Crane as the color yeah. commentator uh, for California Adams games. So it was, uh, and I and actually now I watch that I watch that movie every now and then because it's got that old school uh, NFL feel NFL film style, which which I love. Yeah, I mean he. He he later would, would trade on a celebrity to pull himself out of his financial troubles and and uh, I think that by the time that he he died he was he was doing okay you know but and it was good that he he had that celebrity but he was robbed of a lot he, it, you know his health was ruined by the game his arm was useless to him his right arm you know all the years after football it, it deteriorated and uh, and then also um, you know the Colts leaving was a terrible crime you know, committed against the players that had built the, built that brand. And, you know, they really built football all together and, and they certainly built the Colts. And, and uh, when the Colts left that, you know, that really took a, a financial toll on the, on the big stars like Johnny Unitas. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, like you said, he was the face of the franchise. I mean, um, right. When, and think about Colts- it. And that franchise was tarnished when, when they left, you know, so he was the face of something that, in the end that, you know, right. a lot of unpleasant memories were attached to it as well. Yeah, and I know a few weeks ago I just wrapped up reading um, his son's book about his dad, and that was very insightful in terms of just like you talking about the business dealings, and at least you know with that book it, it kind of it told me kind of the rest the rest of the story, you know, towards the end of his life and everything that it seemed to me he kind of had come to peace with everything, even with the Colts leaving. It, it just, it seemed like at the end of his life, I mean, unfortunately he died way too soon, but at the end, he didn't seem bitter at the end. It, that was my, from what I get. Well, that is, a son, that is a son writing it. 
you know, so I, I mean, I haven't read it, but you know, he's not going to necessarily take the same point of view as a dispassionate third right. party. Right. But, you know, so he may choose to see his, his father that way. And I really, you know, was, didn't know his father. I wasn't familiar with, with him or what his points of view were at the end. I'd seen him around town a few times and he was an extremely nice man. He was yeah. very genial and he understood how much he meant to other people, you know, but as far as like letting go the bitterness of things, I mean, that, that wasn't, you know, what I had heard or what I saw. I mean, you know, one of the guys was like, you know, talking about him not peeing on Shula to put out a fire, you know, things like that. That was like just a couple of years before he died. Yeah. Well, there's uh, he, some you grudges know, never you never let go. With the Colts. <laughs> no, and he never, believe me, he never reconciled with the Colts and he never, he never was. I mean, the Ursay family really right. did him wrong in the contracts and, and then they humiliated him and, you know, pushed him out the door and, and then they took the whole franchise away. And he loved Baltimore. I mean, he was just as passionate about the city as, as any person born here. I mean, yeah. in fact, his daughter told me that, you know, he never, ever wanted to leave Baltimore and he never did. I mean, he, he never moved to like a more glamorous location. He lived here his whole life. Yeah, there were a few weirder things than seeing Johnny Unionis wear a San Diego Chargers uniform. You know, what was one interesting thing about that? You talk about something that, that you left out of the book and that you were sorry you did. There was one newspaper piece I found where he was still an active player for the Chargers, and they, someone asked him about what was going on with the Colts at that time, and he referred to them as us or we. <laughs> you know, he was like, well, it's, you know, we have uh, – uh, O'Brien playing wide receiver and he's really a kicker, you know, so what can you expect? You know, so he was still, still saw himself as a cold, even when, even when he was a charger. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jack, we are going to wrap it up here. I know uh, it is Sunday morning and uh, we are, we are at, at that mark here. And um, in terms of just, I know Scott has uh, moving to do and I've got a, I've got a honeydew list that is waiting for me here, and I know you've got places to be. Can you let everybody know where to find you on 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 the on social media, and also where to buy your book at? I'll buy all your books. Well, he could uh, look me up on either Twitter or or uh, or Facebook under my under my own regular name, and uh, you know, and send me a, a friend request or a you know a, a follow request on either of those. And then my book is published by the University of Nebraska Press. You can buy it through them or you can buy it at Amazon.com, of course. And, uh, you know, so you can, you can get it in any of those places. Father's Day is coming up. So if you have a grumpy old man in your life, you might, you might, uh, you might like that book. It is the perfect so, Father's Day gift, I tell you. I don't have, I'm not a father, I, I but I tell so. you what, if, if, my, if my old man were still around, this would be a book I'd get him. If you, you know, my, my dad was a football fan, but. Yeah, this would be the one book that I would, would have gotten him if he were still around. Um, yeah, my, my father would have liked it too, but he passed away before it was it was published also. Yeah, and when's your next book coming out? Yeah, I think sometime around March or April of this coming year. Okay. So it's, it's completely written. It's with the publisher, but it, it takes a while. It doesn't even have a title yet, but it's, it's done. Okay, great. Well, I'm looking forward to reading it, and I, and I know Scott is. Yeah, we well, just thank need- you for having me on your show, guys. Yeah, this oh, has been well, so much fun. Thank you. And yeah, I Jack, enjoyed it too. Jack, it's been it's it's an honor because I, you know, I mean, I I've told Scott, I was I told Scott about your book, and you know, to be able to talk to you and and not only talk to you just on the podcast, but we've 
talked offline. Hell, heck, we're Facebook friends. So, and uh, it's it's an honor, and I'm looking forward to more conversations as time goes on. Me too, and I, I really love being on your show. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. I'll see, you, right. see you guys soon. All right. Take care. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. When the summer days grow hotter and hotter and the sun glimmers on the glassy water and no breeze blows the way it ought to, it's time for national beer. You feel dried out as any fossil and you're thirsty with the thirst colossal. There's one sure treat you just can't beat and that's good old national beer. Try the pleasant living way to beat the heat of the hottest day. Say national beer, national beer, you'll like the taste of national beer. And while we're singing, we're proud to say you can beat the heat of the hottest day with national beer, national beer. Quality, that's the word for national beer, and I mean real quality. The finest grains, the purest water, the utmost patience in brewing and aging. That's the kind of quality that makes national beer light and refreshing. You can tell by the taste. Brewed on the shores of the Chesapeake Bay. This is Johnny Unitas of the Baltimore Colts. Let's go, you Colts. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. 
Hello, football friends. This is Darren Hayes of the Pigskin Dispatch Podcast, and I'd like to invite you to the portal of positive football history, Pigskin Dispatch and pigskindispatch.com. We talk about everything that centers around the game of American football, expert discussions, the origins of the games, the great players, teams, and coaches, and more, and some great guests and insights from experts. We have new episodes three to four times a week, and you can find us on sportshistorynetwork.com, pigskindispatch.com, or your favorite podcast provider. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.